you don't have the handout, get the handout. Believe me, get the handout. So maybe you don't have the handout. Need one? Okay. I chose to pick the mo- take the most inspiring line and make it the title. But Esau, I hated. Don't you just already feel inspired to great and noble deeds? God is terrifying. He is a terrifying God. He is awesome and mighty. He does everything He wants. And so, our conception of God, we need to understand, God is eternal. He's outside of all time. The whole of history is laid before Him like a banquet on the table. He's not surprised by the dessert. And so, we should look upon the reality of God's eternality and His sovereign choice and not seek to find a way to explain it away but seek to understand it deeply. And if we find some problem where we think this somehow seems to be unjust or make God not good, then you need to understand what is good. You need to understand the definition of God. You need to understand the way in which this answer is coherent. And so we are considering and moving forward. The temptation looking at this text that we're about to read is that there are quotes from all over the Old Testament. So I have one outline that has all these quotes and all the explanations of their context. And after realizing that would take several weeks to preach through, and a good counsel of my wife, to have a more simplified outline, this is the simplified outline. It's a simple text. It really is. It's easy to understand. The problem is that there is so much assault upon it. Because it is such a clear text about the sovereignty of God. There are efforts by people to get some sort of great honor by tearing down the true God. But he is no idol. He cannot be torn down. He is not a statue. He is not dead. He is not mute. He tears down the statues. So let's read Romans 9, verses 10 to 24. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed Say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, 
endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now last week, we went over the portion just before that. We looked at verses 6-9. through So let me remind you of that text, because it's sort of the beginning of the argument. It says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, I talked about the various places in which this was discussed in Genesis. And we talked about also in Galatians chapters 3 and 4 how this is discussed. So I have a summary here for your review of what it is that the point was. Okay, the word of God has not failed, even though not everybody from Israel is saved. Not all the people who come from Israel by the flesh are spiritual Israel. Not all the seed of Abraham by the flesh are children of Abraham in terms of inheritance. Four, in Isaac, the inheritance will be publicly known. Five, not all the children of Abraham by the flesh are heirs of God. Six, all the children of promise, all the children of the gospel, are counted as heirs of Abraham and of God. Seven, Isaac was born physically by the power of the Spirit, according to a promise, so that Abraham and Sarah conceived Isaac by faith. And this is explained in Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. This conception from promise, from spirit, from faith, is contrasted with a conception from law, flesh, and unbelief in Galatians 3 and 4. And that's with Hagar. So, we talked about how this conception by the spirit is a pointing to being born of the Spirit in terms of regeneration. And so, then we move on on page 2, and we move to the text we're talking about today. Verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay, so there's a building here. Not only is it true that Isaac is the child of promise, conceived through the miraculous power of the Spirit rather than the natural power of man, the flesh, but there's more. When Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. So let's look at the explanation there. So Genesis 25, 21 says, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, 
because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. They were married at 40, when Isaac was 40, and this conception occurs when he's 60. So, we have Rebekah's conception of Jacob and Esau. This is like Sarah's conception. It's in a state of barrenness. The conception was not by the ordinary power of the flesh, human nature, but the conception was supernatural, and it was for all to see, and thus it was miraculous. So there are supernatural things that are not miraculous, and there are miracles. Supernatural things is anything that is above the nature of the thing itself. Regeneration is a supernatural thing. When the Holy Spirit gives you faith, it's a supernatural work. It's not a miracle. Why is it not a miracle? The word miracle relates to the word to see in Latin. Okay, So it is associated with the terms of signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are things to be seen that can be wondered at. They're signs that point to the reality. And so the idea of a miracle is a supernatural work that's meant to be seen. And it's a sign pointing to something. This conception was something that was visible to the world in the sense that Sarah was too old to conceive and Rebecca was obviously barren after 20 years of marriage without conception. Them having children was something that was plain to be seen as a work of God. And so it's supernatural, and it's a sign and wonder. That's what a miracle is. So I would encourage you to be careful with the use of the term miracle. It is a work of God when children are conceived. It is a supernatural work of God when people are regenerated. God answers prayers and heals. But miracles are associated with the continuation of revelation in terms of special revelation. So God continues to do supernatural works, but miracles are associated with revelation and the revelatory offices. And so there are no miracles. There is supernatural work that continues. The conception was supernatural, and for all to see, it was a miracle. So Jacob and Esau both are supernaturally conceived. But the supernatural conception, a sign of the new birth, but not the reality of the new birth, is not the cause of blessedness. Isaac and, and Ishmael, you look at them, Ishmael's not supernaturally conceived. He doesn't have the glory of being the one through whom Christ will come. Isaac is supernaturally conceived, and he has the glory of having Christ come through his line. We get to Jacob and Esau, they're both supernaturally conceived. That's not the difference. Isaac and Ishmael are both of the same father and both part of the visible church. They were both circumcised. They were both saved. Yet only Isaac was chosen to be the one through whom Christ would come. Jacob and Esau were of the same human father, mother. They were of the same time of conception, the same hour of birth. Both were members of the visible church. Both were circumcised. But Christ would only come through Jacob and Esau was not and would not be saved from the wrath of God. Verse 11. For the, perp- for the children not yet being born or having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. 
Okay, so God's purpose of displaying His glory is the purpose of election. He elects in order to display His glory. He chooses persons for that end. The, cho- the choice of persons serves that cause. It is a means. God's purpose of election stands. It does not fall. It does not fail. His purpose aligns with the election, the choice of persons to be vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath. It is not an election based upon works because there would be no basis of differentiation. The elect and the reprobate men are both breakers of the law. They're both guilty, incapable of doing good. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. God's purpose of election is an election based upon God's goal of displaying His mercy. God's purpose of election is not originating in works, but in He who calls. It's originating Himself. God's calling, both the external ineffectual call, like what I'm doing right now, preaching the Word, this is an external call. If you don't believe it, it's ineffectual for you. God's calling also the internal and effectual call. Right? If the Holy Spirit causes you to believe, understand and believe, that's an internal call, it's an effectual call. God's calling is for the purpose of bringing about the purpose of His choice. God's calling is for the purpose of bringing about the purpose of His choice. What's the purpose of His choice? The display of His glory. So the purpose of the call is to display His glory by causing people to believe and causing other people to reject the call. Verse 12. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now this is a sighting of Genesis 25. The individual Esau was predestined to serve the individual Jacob. Arminians will make much of this and try to say, you know, Esau never served Jacob. Only his descendants did. They're wrong. He served Jacob at times unwittingly and at other times wittingly. He served Jacob rather well when he went to go hunting for his father to get him stew, which allowed an excellent opportunity for Jacob to sinfully deceive his father. God used Jacob's sin to bring about the good of Jacob. Your sins in your life are used by God, planned by God, for your good. That does not mean you should sin. But it gives you hope to know that your past sins are something that, that can't destroy God's plan. They were planned by God. Esau served Jacob well when he met Jacob, when Jacob was returning to the promised land, offered to not take gifts from Jacob, offered to escort Jacob to his home, 
Shechem. And then at Jacob's bidding left. Esau served Jacob well when he ends up acknowledging the inheritance that Jacob has. He doesn't overthrow it. He doesn't ambush him and seek to kill him and take the inheritance from it. There was a period of time where Esau intended to kill Jacob, but his wrath subsided. So there are a number of ways in which Esau served Jacob in his own life. The most important is the way in which he gave way to Jacob for Jacob to receive the blessing and for Jacob to have the spiritual authority even if done unwittingly. The individual Esau was predestined to serve the individual Jacob. Esau was reprobate before he was born. Esau was reprobate before he'd done any good or evil. Esau was reprobate so that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him who calls. Reprobation is this decree of God for a person to be cursed, damned, condemned. Let's stare at it plainly. God chose Esau for destruction. And he chose him as an individual for destruction. This is a general principle taught in many places of Scripture. One of those places is in the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs, we are told that the Lord made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom or the day of evil, in other words, the day of destruction. That's Proverbs 16.4. We'll go down the line. We've already read repeatedly in Romans 9 the idea of vessels created for destruction, vessels of wrath. Those are particular individuals created for wrath. And so we must deal with that plainly. And on the other side, and the reason, one of the reasons this is so glorious is because we can consistently stare into the mercy of God and understand that mercy to be a mere mercy, a pure mercy, a mercy that is not mixed with our merit, a mercy that is not based upon us having done anything, not dependent upon it, but instead that we have security rooted in the unchangeable desires of God for our good. Jacob was elect unto salvation before he was born. Jacob was elect unto salvation before he had done any good or evil. Jacob was elect unto salvation so that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. This emphasis on the origin of this salvation in God, it is he who calls. The nation of Esau, Edom, was predestined to serve the nation of Jacob, Israel. The nation of Jacob, Israel, was also chosen for the line of Christ as a means of bringing about the salvation of Israel and of all nations in a corporate way and of all elect individuals. This text, Arminians will often come to it and point to it and say there's a corporate element here. Of course there's a corporate element here. There's also an individual element here. 
Jacob and Esau are individuals. This is true about the groups that are, just, that are descending from them. But it's true about them. If you try to read the rest of the book of Romans without understanding the corporate element, you're going to have to run into some really big problems at Romans 11. When you run into the idea of, of Israel and the Gentiles and the olive tree. And the idea that Israel will be grafted back into the olive tree. If you don't deal with individuals here, the rest of the chapter doesn't make any sense. If you don't accept that this has to do with individuals, the rest of the chapter doesn't make any sense. The vessels don't make any sense, and the objections don't make any sense. And we already know, going back to the thesis of the book, the idea that the just shall live by faith, we have this explanation of the justice of God in multiple ways. His justice in his nature, his justice in his law, his justice in terms of imputation of righteousness to us, his justice in the sense of sanctification, where we have righteousness imparted to us by being transformed after the image of Christ. And we have the justice of God in predestination. And then we have the justice of God in dealing with the nations as that falling out and the way in which he's going to fill the earth with the just reign of Christ. So this explanation of terms and drawing out how there are multiple applications of a text, that's what the book of Romans is about, drawing that out. And so we're seeing that now in terms of the idea of Israel and its place as a corporate body and Israel, Jacob, as an individual. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This is about the individuals first and foremost, and then it is about the corporate effects by covenant succession. This is talked about in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the context of Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5, what's being drawn out is the corporate effects. What's being talked about there is how the nation of Israel has been blessed by God versus the Edomites. And how God is going to accomplish the purpose of building in a way that lasts with Israel. But he's going to tear down all the things that Edom tries to do. And he's going to leave them desolate. Now that's, that's happened. There's a famous ruin called Petra. A glorious city of stone carved into a mountain. Do you know how many Edomites live there today? Zero. It is a place of the dead where tourists go and tramp upon their graves. God has cursed Edom and he's destroyed it. And he has done that because Jacob he loved, but Esau he hated. Now, hated and loved are mutually exclusive categories. This is something that I I think is pretty obvious. But most Calvinists want to believe that God loves the people he hates. 
they teach a doctrine called common grace. And they say, God loves and ardently desires with a quaver in his voice the salvation of the reprobate whom he hates and is eternally predestined to damn. That is nonsense. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, has a list of, there's a time for everything. And it lists complementary pairs, A and non-A. And it goes through this list and gives us these things, a time for peace and a time for war. You know, there's, when you're at war, you're not at peace, and when you're at peace, you're not at war. A time to begin life and a time to end life. Okay, well, when you begin life, you're not ending life. When you're ending life, you're not beginning life. On the same sense. So you go through that list and you've got all these contradictory pairs. And the idea is there's a different time for different things. And one of them is there's a time to love and a time to hate. And those are contradictories. You cannot love and hate the same object at the same time in the same sense. And this cannot be solved by saying, well, maybe God loves them in a different sense. Okay, let's look for this different sense. When you love somebody, do you seek their good or do you seek their harm? You seek their good. Well, God has made the wicked for the day of evil, the day of their harm, the day of doom. So we're not talking about that. Okay. How about a different time? Perhaps God's compassions change. Perhaps his attitudes differ at different times towards the same object. Well, the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 6 to 7, say that God's attitudes do not change. So, where are we stuck? Jacob I loved. Esau, I hate it. Hatred and love are mutually exclusive categories. Esau, the individual, is shown to have not repented unto life. Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17 explain this. God's attitudes do not change. Love and hatred are mutually exclusive categories. Everyone is someone whom God either hates or loves. God does not have contradictory attitudes or desires. Everyone whom he loves, he does not hate. Everyone whom he hates, he does not love. God does not love everyone. God does not hate everyone. Grace is the love of God for those who deserve his hatred. Grace is demerited favor. Grace is not common. It is not universal. It is particular. It is peculiar. It is sovereign. God chooses whom he will have compassion on. He chooses whom he will have mercy upon. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this view of God encourages the fear of the Lord. It does not take away the edge. It leaves you to stare plainly at God as God. What should we say then? Verse 14. 
is their unrighteousness with God. Right? Like, this terrifying God, the, we sometimes confuse terrifying with unjust. We sometimes confuse terrifying with unjust. So is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Right? So the willing of man and the running of man are not the things that cause us to get the mercy of God. It's God's sovereign choice. His mercy. So verse 14. Is it unrighteous or unjust for God to hate Esau from eternity past? Is it unrighteous of God to hate Esau before Esau had done anything good or evil? Certainly not. The claim that God is God and that God is unrighteous is definitionally absurd. Because remember, God is by definition the highest good. There's nothing above him. And so we're going to consider where, where are we making a mistake? Where is our logical error? Okay, God defines what is good. God gives law for men and angels because he defines them and defines what is good for them. The law of God is revealed to man and explains the meaning of obtaining what is good for men. The means of obtaining what is good for men. The law does not explain a standard of behavior that God is obligated to follow. So our idea that God is unjust, what's just for God to do is made plain to us by what he does and what he says. God is above the law. The only test that we can apply to God is coherence. Since God is logic and cannot contradict himself, the question is, is what the Bible is saying coherent? Is our understanding coherent? Does it contradict itself or not? So let's consider the logic of this. What God says is by definition true. Hebrews 6 talks about how God says something and he swore so that two unmutable things show that God cannot lie. If God contradicts himself, then God lies. God cannot lie. Titus 1, 2 says that. And think about this. This is because God created by his word, by his decree. What he says is true. He makes things by what he says, what he thinks. Now, when it comes to himself, he cannot remake himself. He cannot change himself. So the question is, is what he's saying an accurate, coherent view of his own nature? Well, without God, we have no definition of what's good. What God does is good. And he explains for us the logic of the authority of God. He moves on to the potter and the clay. God's the property owner and the maker. He can do with what he makes what he pleases. If God kills a man, it's not murder. If he takes from a man, it's not theft. He has the right to kill anybody he pleases. We are like sheep to the slaughter. He can do with as he pleases. God kills you, can you say, you murdered me, God? Verse 15. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. His mercy is not something we have a right to. You have a right to it in Christ, if you believe, because he gave you that faith. That's the legal order he set up. He's promised it. But do you have a right to be given faith? Do you have a right to be represented by Christ? Just because you're a human being? Scripture teaches that God told Moses that God's decree, his goal and his plan to accomplish his goal, is the controlling force of all things and that mercy presupposes evil. So if you're saying, God, you owe me mercy, remember you're evil. And you already know you're evil. We've already considered this back earlier in Romans. You know you're a breaker of the law. Your own conscience contradicts itself. You know you do things that you judge to be evil. And so the claim, think about the absurdity of this claim. Really grab hold of this for a second. The idea that you have a right to mercy. You have a right to justice. You have a right to justice. And in justice, you ought to be punished with eternal damnation. God shows mercy to whom he will and he has compassion on whom he will. Mercy presupposes evil. It's pre- it supposes that there's a demeriting. That you don't have merit. You don't just have a status of unmerited innocence. You have demerit. That's what mercy presupposes. So, Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 12 remind us of this idea that God's decree is the controlling force of everything. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. The Shorter Catechism answers the question, what are the decrees of God? And it says, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. The question is not, why don't we get what we're owed? There is not injustice on God's part. The question is, Why is anybody forgiven? Verse 16, the effectual cause of salvation is not the willing of man. Let's look at that text. So it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. The effectual cause of salvation is not the willing of man. It's the willing of God. Making it the will of man that causes our salvation effectively is to make man God. It makes it so that God is obligated to follow the choices of men rather than the other way around. You will not understand the nature of reality properly if you think that man is God and God is not God. You must understand God. The effectual cause of salvation is not the working or running of man. The effectual cause of salvation is the mercy of God alone. And so in the Protestant Reformation, we have sola gratia, we have grace alone. And we have that broken out into tulip that helps to explain that 
more deeply and results in the idea of irresistible grace, that God's grace is irresistible. It necessarily brings about its goal. When God desires the good of a man, that man is saved. Now verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. So the mercy is not only sovereign, but also the hardening is sovereign. Og and Pharaoh are both explained as having had their their hearts hardened by God. And so, when we look at this, we are told, Arminians will make much of the idea that it says, well, you know, it says in Exodus that Pharaoh's heart he hardened his own heart, and then it talks about how God hardened his heart after that. Well, it was also predestined. <laughs> it was also prophesied that he would. And we have this explained for us in very plain terms in the book of Proverbs. Jump down to the bottom of page 5. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the channels or rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So when Pharaoh hardened his own heart, guess who controlled him hardening his own heart? God. You go, well, maybe this doesn't apply to everybody. Maybe it only applies to kings. Proverbs 16.1 The preparations or plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from God. So what you say is from God. Proverbs 16.9 A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Okay, and so what you do is controlled by God. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. All your circumstances come from God. Your words, your thoughts, your deeds, and your circumstances are all controlled by God. So, God says to Pharaoh that God gave power to Pharaoh for the purpose of showing God's power. And bringing about a declaring of God's name in all the earth. This means that God created Pharaoh for the purpose of destroying Pharaoh. God's destruction of Pharaoh is for the display of God's justice. Proverbs 16.4 again. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked, for the day of doom or evil. This doctrine is called teleological superlapsarianism. People, when they make jokes about theology, talk about debating between infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. That's only when they're infralapsarians. Because superlapsarianism is so clear that the best thing you can do as an infralapsarian is talk about not talking about infralapsarianism, superlapsarianism. Okay? Superlapsarianism is a complicated word that just means God used the fall as a means. Full stop. God used the fall as a means. God doesn't come upon his own thought of creating and the end of the history of man and say, you know, I'm stuck with this idea that man is fallen. What can I do with this? God says, I want to show my attributes. I'm going to cause people to do evil so that I can show justice and mercy. That is the rational God God is teleological. Telos means end. He is end 
oriented. He thinks about ends. He has a logic of accomplishing ends. He is about accomplishing purposes. God is rational. He always seeks to accomplish a goal. He's teleological in his choices. He's ends oriented. He chooses things to accomplish goals. God used the fall of man and all sin as means of accomplishing his purpose of showing his attributes. The fall is for the purpose of accomplishing this display. And so the display is the choice of God to save individuals by means of all of history. All of history is for bringing about his end. The decrees of God are in a logical order, and the logical order is from the end to the beginning. Think about this. Any plan that you ever have, you have a goal in mind, and you figure out backwards how to accomplish it. History is in a chronological order. The chronological order is from the beginning to the end. You have a plan, you have a goal, you have means to accomplish the goal, you plan backwards. You have the things you do, you do it from beginning to end. The plan is from end to beginning. The logical order and the chronological order are a mirror image of each other. So look at page 5 there, just before point 25. You see the chronological order, you have step 1, step 2, and then you accomplish the goal. The logical order, you have the goal. Step 2 led into accomplishing the goal. Step 1 starts the process. They are a mirror image of each other. So you think about the construction of a building. An architect has a plan, and the finished building is his goal. It's the last thing to be accomplished in the construction project. Verse 18. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Having considered God's sovereign and predestined mercy, and God's sovereign and predestined justice, it follows that the only effectual cause that can differentiate between the two ends are those is God's choice between whom he's going to have mercy on and whom he's going to give merely justice and punish for the hardness of their hearts. Verse 19. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Now that objection, it flows so naturally out of the idea that God Sovereignly chooses every individual. Think about this. Think about the Arminian position for just a second. All we're talking about is Isaac as he represents other people. All we're talking about is Jacob and Esau as they represent other people. We're not talking about any individuals and whether or not they're saved. And the mercy of God, we're not talking about him choosing the end of anybody, including Pharaoh. We're just saying that God doesn't choose who to save. And what we're saying is, in some sort of external and corporate way, God controls some circumstances, including who's going to get the ordinances of God. God's going to have that delivered by some prophets, and God sovereignly chooses that, kind of trying to manage the chaos. But he doesn't choose anybody's end. And so naturally, from that, of course, you say, why does he still find fault? That objection would be absurd, stupid, laughable, irrational. You'd be saying, are you even listening? I just said God doesn't do it. It's entirely your control. So it's totally your fault. The objection doesn't make any sense unless you read it the way it's written, which is Calvinism. It's predestination. It's the effectual cause by God 
Arminianism does not make any sense in this text. Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But that question is clearly saying, how can God find fault if he's the one who causes me to do evil? And this is what the homosexual lobby has said for a long time until it got bored. I was made this way. I can't choose this, except I can choose my gender, and I can choose who I like. Don't hold me accountable for my words. Forget about this next week. Right? That position was used very effectively against broader evangelicalism, because broader evangelicalism went, uh, no, you couldn't possibly be born with a desire sexually for people of the same sex. Um, let me avoid that. Okay, I'm sorry, are you conceived... Sinful or not sinful? Oh, sinful. So is it possible that from conception you have a desire that's wrong sexually? And if that's the case, then, well, we're stuck with the thing the Bible says, which is who can resist his will. And our responsibility does not depend upon God not being sovereign over our choices. Our responsibility does not depend upon us being born sinless. Our responsibility does not depend on us having some bastion of goodness inside of us. So, why does he still find fault if I was born this way? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Well, yeah, our culture does. Our culture constantly says, you know, why have you made me like this, right? I mean, if this is so bad, why'd you make me like this? They think this is a good objection. They think that they're so clever. They laugh when they finish saying it. If we don't know how to answer it and show the foolishness of this, we lose. So here's the answer. God owns you. And he can do with you what he wants. And if he wants to give you a law and hold you responsible to it, that is something you have to deal with. You can laugh all you want, but your laughing is like the cracking of fire. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Okay, so verse 19. Okay, fine. I can't say that God does evil or unrighteousness or injustice because he's above the law. But how can God hold me responsible for anything that I do since he predestines everything? We cannot resist his will. We cannot do anything except for the things God predestined us to do. God wills for us to do certain things. And then he punishes us for doing those things. Why does God find, why does God find fault for doing the things he wanted us to do? That's the way it's put. And this is built upon the ambiguity of the word wanted. We talked about this before. You need to have this ingrained in your mind. God wills in terms of his decree, and God wills in terms of giving commands. His commands are not always followed. His decree always is accomplished. Okay? We are created, with con- we are conceived with in procreation, and in the moment of our conception, we don't have original righteousness. You do not have righteousness to start with. You do have guilt from Adam. You have the imputed guilt of Adam. 
You have a corruption of your nature. You're conceived in iniquity because from the first moment of conception you do not believe the truth, but you suppress it in righteousness. Actual failures to conform to God's law and actual transgressions passing beyond the boundaries of what He's forbidden, those things are choices that come out of our unbelief. Choices that are not to glorify God. Now, God reveals what is good in Himself and in His law. God gives us an awareness of His attributes innately so that we must suppress the truth and unrighteousness by giving divine attributes to false gods, like making the universe infinite and eternal, or other such nonsense. And that way we can avoid seeing God rightly. God gives us innate moral categories and reason, and we make choices. Our choices contradict themselves. The things we judge as good and choose in one moment are things that we judge as bad and choose not in the next moment. Things we praise, we think negatively of. Things we think negatively of, we praise. We do the things that we commend, and then we do the things we condemn. Our irrational, contradictory choices make our own consciences a witness against us. God's judgment is unavoidable, logically. The choice between good and evil is unavoidable, logically. We cannot logically avoid agreeing with God that we are guilty by our own consciences. So the goal next is to say, God can't judge us since He controls us. Now, the answer in verses 20 and 21 about God's ownership over us is a claim to say, you need to recognize the reality that God is the judge. He has original jurisdiction to call you before His bar of judgment and demand you give an answer. He can call you to give an account. And you can't give an account. Does the creature have the right to judge the work of the thing that made it? Does a pot have that power? How is our condition different from the pot? And the answer immediately springs forth from the lips. It's entered your mind right now. How are we different from a pot? Pots are not sentient beings. They do not have a conscience. We are conscious. And so you say, this argument doesn't follow. The pot's not conscious. We are conscious. I'm sorry. Didn't we just discuss how your consciousness actually is a witness against your guilt? Our consciousness is a witness against us in favor of the justice of God. Our consciousness is not an aid in our suit against God. There is no court to hear it. No charges can be given. He is not guilty. We are. The creature has no court of appeal to call God to give an account. Man is responsible under the law of God to God. God is not responsible to anyone under the law. The request is logically absurd. It assumes the definition of God, and then it contradicts it. We are the property of God as His creatures. He has the right to dispose of us after He makes us, as He sees fit. But all the more, God has the right to create us for a purpose, a designed end. He makes some as vessels for one use and others as vessels for another use. God made vessels of honor and dishonor from the same lump. 
God makes vessels of honor and mercy, and God makes vessels of dishonor and wrath. The lump is the whole set of the logical, possible set of humans. The fall and each sin is a means to accomplish the end. God chose to create men and angels from the whole set of logically possible, rational beings. He makes angels and men for this purpose of showing His glory by treating them differently to show His attributes of justice and mercy. The difference between rewarding good angels and punishing evil angels shows mere justice, pure justice. God rewards Christ in justice, and the just reward of Christ is for the purpose of also showing mercy without the violation of justice. God punishes some men in order to show mere justice towards those men in contrast to the vessels of mercy. And God rewards some men in Christ in order to show mercy without a violation of justice. This is the highest end of man and of all creation. And this gets explained. Here's the actual purpose of God in verses 22 to 24. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. In other words, God delays the punishment of the reprobate in order to show the riches of his mercy and justice to the vessels of mercy. These vessels of mercy are from throughout the world, from every nation. So here's the doctrine. I've, I've got this laid out. I have tried to give for you, and I've put this in a previous outline, the answers to these issues with, with more full explanations and kind of doctrinal heads. My hope is to give you a sound pattern of words. The basic pattern is this. We can't call God to give an account. God is above the law. There is no judge to call God before. And by definition, whatever God does is good and not evil. Those three points allow you to respond whenever anybody wants to judge God. This is the answer to the claim that God is somehow unjust in predestining. The major categories that we have to deal with also involve some church history. People want to talk about whether God is the author of evil. And that phrase is normally undefined. And so the definition, and this is important, God is not the author of evil means that God is not the chargeable cause of evil. God is not the chargeable cause of evil. He's not the responsible cause of evil. He's not the answerable cause of evil. Those are different ways of saying the exact same thing. And this would relate to the idea of, is there demerit on God's part when he causes evil? And so I reminded on page 9 of the different causes, right? Formal cause, effectual cause, instrumental cause, meritorious cause, ultimate cause. The question, is God the author of evil, is the question, is he the responsible party? Is he the meritorious cause? No, he's not the meritorious cause. The meritorious cause is the creature that sins. He's the ultimate cause. 
his seeking of his glory. He's the effectual cause, his decree. He's given us a form. Without the law, there is no sin. He's given the law. So there's a condition necessary for sin to exist. Okay, so my desire is to help you to have a good systematic outline. And so I would encourage you to think about the section of doctrine written out there. Now, lastly, in terms of application, the book of Romans, we talked about a number of these concepts repeatedly. And sometimes it's difficult for people to get a full view of this. If you want the exercise of running through this in terms of a book that will draw you into dealing with this carefully, there's a little book called God and Evil, The Problem Solved by Gordon Clark. It's 30 pages long. He's the most excellent treatment of this subject that has ever been written by man. If you can't read 30 pages, then you just don't care about being able to answer the question. Now, there's a longer book called Religion, Reason, and Revelation that's a subpart of. That's a great book. But I'm not asking you to read that. I'm asking you to read God and Evil, The Problem Solved by Gordon Clark, which is 30 pages. So I would strongly encourage you to read that. And it will tie these things together in an excellent way. Now, the application here, right? Why did Paul write down these words breathed out by the Holy Spirit for us to think about? Why say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated? Why talk about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy? You must understand that God causes everything. And this must control how you think about events. The events in your life were controlled by God, planned by God. And you must think about events in light of that. If you do not, you will view the universe wrongly. You will see reality as different from how it is. And you will never mature in the faith. In order to understand the goal, the mission that we're on, the goal of filling the earth with the knowledge of God, the doxological focus, you have to understand that God controls everything. And only then can you work with hope. Because only if victory is guaranteed could we possibly look at our circumstances and think, yeah, we're going to win. If you don't think that God controls everything, you will not be able to take a step back out of your circumstances and out of your own particular self and try to look at everything in terms of an overhead, overview, overmind. You can't back out to get calm. When you think in a human-centric way, and try to make God fit into the human citric thought process, you make God into an old man in the sky, right, who's pining after you, as opposed to realizing that you need to strive after God. 
the moralistic therapeutic deism that governs most of evangelicalism as opposed to thinking about the sovereign gospel, thinking about the law as something that's useful and spiritual for those who are saved, thinking about a God who controls the details, and thinking that it's not about you, it's not about your therapeutic effects, although that happens. Thinking that this is instead about the glory of God, that's a totally different way of being, a totally different way of living. The effeminacy, weakness, and incompetence of Christians all around us is caused by a man-centric view of things. When you have a God-centric view, you, like our Calvinist forebearers and the early church, can overcome the world. Nations are built out of wilderness. Republics are forged in the middle of empires. Constitutions are written in the midst of war. Capitalism comes into effect where there used to be aristocratic, slave-inducing serfdom. Right? This, this is what happens. In the midst of darkness, light carves out little bastions of the kingdom of God. And that is accomplished not by looking at the circumstances and thinking about man centrally, but thinking about God. You must see God as the good against all the pretenders. So the, the formal attributes of the good that Srinjur Gangadin has put together, thinking about those to be able to, to avoid thinking wrongly about what is good and to be able to disabuse yourself of things that you become enslaved to. You must see knowing God as how you possess the good. Right? The knowledge of God is the thing. It's the thing. It's the principal thing. And so, are you organizing your life around getting more knowledge of God? Right? You, when you have the man-centric view, you say, I'm going to do my thing, and I want to sprinkle some Christianity on it because it will help to make things better. When you have a God-centric view of things, you say, everything else must bow, everything else must subject itself, everything else must be under the foot of pursuing after the knowledge of God. If it doesn't serve that purpose, throw it away. That is the God-centric view of life. And a right view of God allows for that. When you see the definition of God laid out in the Bible... If you're not justified, the only thing to do is to fear God and to repent in dust and ashes for your unbelief. Proverbs 16.6 6 says, In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. I refuse to cover up the glory of God. I refuse to give a varnished view of God. My goal is to put the God of the Bible out there plainly in all of his awesome horror. The response of man must be to be horrified, to be terrified of this God. And if you make God not terrifying, you aren't doing anybody any favors. For the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. 
John 17.3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know God, the only true God. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God must be preached plainly. He must be thought about plainly, so that we can know Him rightly. If you are justified, then you must look at the law as the means to getting what is good, and make use of the law with integrity, relying upon God to bless the use of the law, to increase your knowledge by His illuminating power. That's what organizing your life to pursue the knowledge of God looks like. Studying the law, meditating on the law, applying the law. I promise you it's not boring. It is invigorating. It is terrifying. It is exciting. It is a perpetual war. It is bright as the sun and will draw in your focus. It is fair as the moon and you will find nothing more beautiful. And it is exciting as an army with banners. If you are looking for something worth going after, it is the knowledge of God. There is nothing more glorious, no cause greater. The knowledge of God is powerful to transform you and to transform the world around you. The knowledge of God is powerful to overcome the kingdom of Satan and extend and build the kingdom of God. We want to have something to work for and to avoid a hopeless, meaningless life. And the only thing worth working for is the building of the kingdom. It is something that lasts, and we ought to apply the means that God has given so that we do not build in a way that is shameful. When we apply those means, we can be workmen who are not ashamed. Rather than building with stubble or hay or things that burn away, we can use the things that last. Precious gems and stones and gold. And that is what the work that is accomplished by the Spirit that is done with the law of God is. This vision of God should inspire you to that life. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members? Mr. Nye? Thank you, Elise. I have a few questions. Uh, first, regarding, you know, you were talking about how uh, God hitting Esau was both individual and corporate. And so, I believe you were um, implying that, well, forgive me, I do not want to say that you're implying that God, well, my question actually is, does that mean if it's corporate that God hated every single Edomite? So the question is, if God's hatred towards Edom is corporate, does that mean that God hated every single Edomite? No, in the same way that God's corporate love of Israel does not mean that every single Israelite was loved by God. That makes sense. Thank you. Um, my second question um, is regarding Proverbs 16.1. Uh, um, the preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Um, I think you said that you interpreted the answer of the tongue um, being what man says. Is that, is that how you understand that verse as opposed to being the answer of the tongue, like being Lord, the Lord's response to man's plans in the, in the sense of like, like that's what overrides what man thinks is he's planning in his heart. God's decree overrides that. And being in like a, a, a turn of phrase or um, an not an illustration, but... Yeah, so my understanding is that 
the preparations or plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, is saying that God controls um, what the man says. We also know that he controls the thoughts of man. Um, but I'm, I'm saying that, yes, I think that verse is telling us that God controls what man says. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll maybe talk about that later. Um, so thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, and the last, the last question I have, um, can, you, can you give, I guess, a, a quick distinction or a comparison between the word conscience and consciousness? Yeah, so consciousness is the state of having knowledge or thoughts, and a conscience is the same as like a mind. Sort of very related. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much. All right. Mr. Marsh. I have a question about uh, common grace. That term used a lot, as you mentioned. Um, I understand the distinction that you made in uh, clarifying that uh, it's there in the reading of the scripture that uh, some vessels are on and some are dishonored. Um, so, what would we call? My understanding typically of common grace is say, my father, who's not a believer, grows up in a Western society that's been affected by believing uh, people. And so he's uh, receiving uh, a lot of the graces that come with living amongst believers, even in our house, uh, hopefully. And uh, um, whereas if we were growing up, So in terms of um, in terms of what name to give to it, uh, let me return back to that just for a second and say uh, before that, the idea of using the label common grace is not in and of itself evil. But what is evil is if we mean that God, without intending to save a person, is giving someone his grace. Now, we can use in an idiomatic way the term common grace. I don't think it's helpful because I think, generally speaking, most people mean what include, what's called the doctrine of the well-meant offer, um, which is the idea that God ardently desires the salvation of the reprobate. Or you'll have God intends to give something for the good of the reprobate, and that's obviously not his intention. So that's my concern and sometimes we have idioms that are not particularly clear or helpful um, and so I think a part of our dominion work would be looking for a good label and being able to name it in a way that helps to be more clear upon the first statement 
So now to your question, um, what should we call it? I think that would be a worthy discussion amongst us to have, to look for a, a better label. Um, I would rather kind of refer to the idea of um, the ordinances and oracles of God. Um, and so I would think just in the same way that being baptized and hearing the preaching of the word is a curse to those who do not believe, the benefits of Western civilization are the ordinances of God applied to the civil sphere. And so we have capitalism, constitution, limited government, rule of law, those things, and all of the prosperity that we have, those things are a result of the application of the ordinances of God. So um, I would most closely relate it to that, but there may be a better phrase. Um, so that's my thought. Any, any, any thoughts yourself? No, I guess uh, you growing up you know, as a Christian life, using that term uh, not improperly, understanding it, I, I guess, as, uh, uh, I guess, appropriately, right? Uh, that, yeah, they're benefiting from these things, yet they're still, uh, unless they depend, uh, you know, once, once they, they pass, you realize. And uh, so, I mean, it hit me when you, I, I never really thought about it much because I wasn't around thinking about people misusing that term. Thank you. I guess if anybody, during the fellowship meal this evening, if anybody has time to meditate on that and think about it, it might be a useful time to talk about this particular thing and see if we can figure out a good short uh, label to use consistently and a way to try to communicate about that. So uh, thank you for that. All right. Then seeing no other questions, I'll proceed to, uh, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause the preaching of your word to bring glory to your name. That you would help us to see you aright, to see you as terrifying, but to see you as also merciful, and to see your mercy obtained for us in Christ. We ask that you would help us to see the atonement properly, and to see your truth properly. That we would know you and have eternal life. We ask, Father, that you would build us up in the faith, you would help us to bear fruit, to work together, to have a serious commitment to working together, that we would arrange our lives in more and more detail to the purpose of growing in the knowledge of you and not to any other purpose, that we would disabuse ourselves of false views of the good, pleasure, comfort, entertainment, wealth, that none of those things would be wrongly placed in our minds as the highest thing and the thing around which we should organize our lives. And so we pray this in Christ's name.